And I get to in introduce another guest speaker today. Uh, as Alex said, we're having our huddle this week, which is, uh, for those of you that aren't aware of what it is, uh, we've been doing it so many years, I kind of take it for granted that you know what it is. Just because we've been doing it for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. But we get together with as many of the Calvary chapels in New England who want to get together and the pastors and their leaders and their wives, we get together in a, a Christian camp in New Hampshire, and we, uh, we have anywhere from you know, 60 to 100 people uh, get together and, and just talk about ministry, talk about serving the Lord, and, and uh, we worship and we pray together. We have just a great time together. So that's what we're about to do uh, uh, starting tomorrow. So because we put it together here uh, in this church, we put it together we often get to have who the guest speaker is come here first, right? So we've had, uh, you know, last year we had Bill Holdridge, and we get to have these guys sometimes, if their schedule allows it. So, so again, we get to be blessed today by having uh, our guest speaker for the huddle come here today, and he's here. Can you look around and see if you can find him? He's here somewhere. I'm not sure which one he is, though. Actually, I do. But uh, his name is Phil, and his wife is here, and his daughter is here as well. His, his wife's name is Joy. His daughter's name is Nick, uh, Nikki. almost said Nicola. Uh, it's Nikki, and uh, we're getting to know them. And uh, they, they actually live, uh, Phil and Joy live in Budapest. i got to say that right, right? Budapest. And uh, Nikki lives in San Diego. So they kind of met together to have some time together as a, uh, uh, you know, part of the family and uh but uh, Phil's a pastor of the, of the Calvary Chapel in Budapest, and also he's been working at the Bible school, the Bible college that uh, Calvary Chapel has in Hungary as well for many, many years. And so he's been on the mission field, and he's going to tell you a little bit more about that as well. But let's go ahead and give a nice uh, Green Meadow welcome to <laughs> Phil and his family. Thanks, Rich. All right, good morning. How did I do? Did I turn it on right? Yeah? I got a thumbs up back there, but... Yeah, good? You guys can hear me okay? All right. All right. Um, it's good to be with you guys. Never been to Rhode Island before, so... Uh, it's kind of pretty here. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, we're, we're kind of on jet lag, so I was up at 5, and I went for a run around one of the by the water. And we live in Hungary. It's a uh, landlocked country. So water beckons me whenever, I, whenever we're nearby. So we were glad to be here and um, we're glad to be at this conference too. I'll tell you a little bit about our kind of ministry and how we got to Hungary and whatnot. Um, Joy and I both grew up at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa under Pastor Chuck Smith. And uh, when we graduated high school, he actually did our wedding. And uh, then I was a youth pastor there at the church for four years. And then after that time, we, we felt called to go to the mission field for quite a while. And so in 1998, we moved to, uh, to Hungary. And at that time, there was uh, one church there in Hungary that Calvary Chapel had started. And it, we were invited by the Baptist movement in Hungary. The, the church there, uh, the Baptist Union had said, hey, would you guys come and help us reach the young people? You know, the walls of... Uh, uh, you know, of, of course, the, 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 the Iron Curtain had just come down, and it was like an open door. You could go in if you wanted to. And so we went in, 
to work among the young people there with the Baptist church. But, and a lot of people started getting saved, young people. And they had never been to church before. Um, the whole laws on you know, how you could go to church and all, everything had just changed. So um, a lot of the young people weren't fitting into the maybe conservative church. And so this Baptist pastor had invited us to, he said, listen, it's great these guys are getting saved, but they're, they're having a hard time adjusting to, to our church environment. So why don't you guys go start your own church? And, uh, and um, so we hadn't exactly thought of that at the beginning, but that's kind of the, the, the heart of Calvary Chapel. We're a church planning movement. And so we, uh, we did, we took these, these young people and we began a church and we were kind of wondering like what we should call ourselves. And we thought Calvary Chapel is a, it's a great name. It's been working for a while. So let's go with that. And, you know, we were all still learning Hungarian and figuring out the language. And it's a, if you don't know, I wouldn't expect you to know anything about Hungary and all, but it's one of the most difficult languages on the planet. And I'm not saying that just because I'm living there, uh, although that would be convenient, but it, it just is. Very difficult language. And so, but we figured out how to translate, you know, Calvary Chapel, and we did. And we were telling this Baptist pastor, you know, here, we were thinking of this name and all, and he, he's smiling and he says, no, for, please do not name your church that. The name, we had translated Calvary Chapel, and it, it, um, it translates funeral home. <laughs> so, oops. <laughs> so, he thought, that's a terrible idea for your church, you know. Uh, it's the name, of, uh, it's like a, it's the name of the little chapel that would be in a, in a, at a, on a funeral property. So, uh, so he came up with the name. He said, you guys should call yourselves Golgotha. Golgotha for, of course, you can hear it, Golgotha. In English, we say Golgotha. But, uh, so Calvary, Mount Calvary. But in Hungarian, we say Golgotha. And so uh, we've been a church in Hungary uh, since 19, well, I lived there previously in 1993. We've been there since 1992. And um, today we have, I think it's 36 Calvary Chapel churches in Hungary. And yeah, it's pretty amazing. And then across Eastern Europe, it's probably um, over 60 churches now. Um, Eastern Europe would consist of Ukraine, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, Romania, a whole bunch of places most people don't know where they are. Uh, but there's people there and who need to hear the gospel. So, yeah, like I said, there's probably 60 plus churches across Eastern Europe, maybe over 100 plus churches across Europe that are connected to the Calvary Chapel movement and all. And so we've been there for uh, uh, the last 20 years. We have four kids and Nikki is our oldest and she's married now, living in San Diego. We have another daughter who is in college in Phoenix, Arizona, and then we have two um, that stay that are home with us. So as soon as they graduate high school, they, they tend to come back to America for college. So um, we're glad to be here. We're glad to go to the huddle. And I want to share with you, if you don't mind, from the book of Hosea. I should have said that earlier because most of us can't find the book of Hosea. But if you can, um, take your Bibles and turn to Hosea chapter 2. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the ministry that we're a part of now. We've been, um, Joy and I have been a part of four different church plants in Hungary. Our focus has been in church planting. Uh, but we had, we had planted a church and we're helping another one get started. And at that time, the, the Bible College in Austria was looking to move into Hungary. And the reason for that was because we wanted to be able to reach more people in the in Eastern Europe. And of course, it's hard. It was hard for um, Eastern Europeans to go into Western Europe. Now everything's changed. Uh, but at the time, that wasn't the case. And so 
once things opened up, we bought a property in, in Hungary to, to hold the Bible college there. And so we moved there in uh, 2001, our family and I, we moved to the Bible college. And then I had the opportunity of overseeing that for, I think, a decade. And, uh, but in 2007, the Lord opened up a door for us to move in, or to take over the church in uh, Budapest. Budapest is a city of about almost three million, two and a half, three million so yeah, we flew into Boston and we kind of felt at home, just that big city kind of a feeling. We love that. We've gotten used to that. And um, we have four Calvary chapels now in the city of Budapest. Um, we could use probably 40 though, because it's a big, big city. But um, we, our church is kind of, is a, we're an inner city downtown, very downtown type of a church. It's not uncommon to, you know, we have a, um, our church has a homeless shelter ministry. So we feed 260 people every day. Uh, seven days a week, 365, just all the time. And it's kind of a not even, it's a, not even a dent in the, in the issues there. The, uh, homelessness is a huge problem in most big cities, but definitely in, um, in Eastern Europe. As well, we have a ministry reaching out to prostitutes and to um, dealing a lot with the issue of human trafficking. Human trafficking is a massive problem across Eastern Europe. Not so much uh, a stopping point, but a, a through point. And so we have 150,000 people trafficked through Hungary every year. And 80% of those are under 18. Massive, mass. And, and, and if you were in Hungary or if you were in Budapest, you wouldn't even, you'd have no clue that that was happening. It's, it's very much under... Um, you just, it's, it's unseen. And because of that, um, you know, there's two policemen who are dedicated to the human trafficking problem. Two. In the, in the whole country. And um, there's just nothing, nothing really happening al- along those scenes. So our church has taken a real, uh, in, um, kind of a, uh, on the front lines of trying to not just bring awareness to the problem, but so we have a home in the city that is for girls that have been trafficked. And they come and they learn a trade and they get to hear the gospel and they kind of get a fresh start on life. And so um, I don't actually, I can't tell you any numbers. I have no idea. They don't give us, it's so secretive because it's dangerous for these girls and all. So, but uh, they've had several girls go through this program, dozens, uh, and are back out now kind of able to have a normal life as much as, as possible. So that's a real, um, real big part of our, of our church life. Um, so we're kind of, a, like I said, kind of an inner city, uh, but our focus is on, is on church planting and on just and on sharing the gospel. And um, so I want to share with you, and I'm going to kind of share more about Hungary as I talk about uh, this story in Hosea. The reason I wanted to share on, you know, I, I love this story, especially, you know, for where we're at, the book of Hosea is somewhat of a, it's kind of um, appropriate. Uh, you know, if you don't know the story, then I'll, I'll kind of, spoil it by giving a little bit of information here. The, 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 the book of Hosea is about God speaking. He's an unlikely prophet, a kind of a strange prophet. God calls a man and his entire ministry is not so much what he says, but what he does, which is a very unique ministry among the prophets. The prophets tended to be mouthpieces for God. God would give them a message and they would speak that message. Hosea's story is a little bit different. Instead of Hosea being given a message from God and then communicating that message, Hosea's life becomes the message. 
And of course, we could all say that's true for, that's supposed to be true of every Christian, right? Not just what you say, but how you live. It's very much the case for Hosea. Hosea is a kind of a life lesson. And um, it's, it's kind of one of those stories that is, I mean, it's certainly not a normal Sunday school uh, passage. So uh, I apologize, I guess, but not really, because it's a fantastic Fantastic story, and I think one of the most important messages in the Bible. It's a message that is thread throughout every book. It's a message that is the truly the heart of God. And I think a great kind of a as a guest, it's I, I love to get to share on the subject. And it's on it's on the subject of grace. And and Hosea takes the message of grace to levels that are almost actually I'm gonna take away the word almost because it's not just almost. It takes it to the level of crazy scandalous, uncomfortable. If grace could be uncomfortable, the book of Hosea goes there. Uh, you know, we like the idea of grace as being very neat, very clean, beautiful, wonderful, church appropriate. The book of Hosea is definitely not church appropriate. It goes beyond that. And I think that's a good thing because the world that we live in is not church appropriate, is it? The world we live in is um, in need of something that is uh, drastic, Dramatic, And the book of Hosea, I think, paints that picture for us in a great way. Um, it's a straightforward kind of a message, and so it, it won't require, you know, we read it and we can pretty much understand right away. But let me just give you the, the gist of the story because I want to focus on one particular element. The gist of the story is this, is that God calls a prophet, Hosea, and he calls him not to necessarily, like I said, a message, but to... Um, a type of life and the life is is that I want you to go and marry a prostitute there's a lot of people that have a question you know bible scholars love to discuss these things was she a prostitute before he married her or after I don't know about you but it's pretty bad either way I, I don't have a problem <laughs> you know they can argue all those things as far as I'm concerned it's terrible one way or the other whether she was a prostitute before he married her or she became one in her mar in their marriage you decide which one you are more comfortable with. Both of them make me uncomfortable. Hosea is called to marry a woman of the, the most, of ill repute, we would say. She was not one you would, you wouldn't, uh, you know, what does your wife do? Let's not talk about that. She was scandalous, shameful. Not, a, not a, in, in, in any way of the, in any way, she's not a trophy wife. <laughs> This is a bad situation. But yet God is going to use this marriage to, to teach us a lesson, to teach us a message. And as we read this, I want you... Now, we have a way of reading the Bible that, I don't know, it makes us feel a little comfortable. And I, I want to push you outside of your comfort zone, if you don't mind. Okay. If you do, it's too late. We're here, so we're going there. Okay. We tend to, you know, and, and we've been taught this, and it's very true. We've been taught that when you read the Bible, you know, we want to we see, we've, what, what was the phrase we learned many years ago? What would Jesus do, right? How, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? Really, it's a great way of looking at Scripture. But there's an unintended factor that we didn't, uh, that we didn't expect, and it's this. We tend to place ourselves as Jesus in the story. So we read 
you know, Jesus heals a person, and so we try to learn, like, lesson. You know, obviously we couldn't just heal somebody, but we try to see how he spoke to them, the kind of compassion that he had. The, the, uh, you know, we, we try to imagine ourselves in that kind of a scenario. You know, when Jesus does something great, we try to imagine ourselves in that situation. How would I respond if I were in that kind of a situation? And yet, as it's not... It's not wrong to see ourselves in that way. However, it's not the full picture. You see, the reality is is that I'm not Jesus in the story. I'm never Jesus in the story. I'm always the other guy. I'm closer to the other guy than I'll ever be to Jesus. I'm closer to the sinner than I'll ever be to the Son of God. If it's a scale, it's not close. And so I can learn how to have compassion from Jesus. I can learn how to respond to people, how to love people. I can learn all those things, and it's all good and, and wonderful. But when I read the scriptures, the truth is, is that I am the other guy. Just look straight through it. If, if somebody was sick, I'm that guy. I need healing. Do you? Okay. Um, when... I mean, let's, let's, get, let's get crazy here. I'm closer to the dead guy than I am to the, to, to the Son of God. When Jesus raises a guy from the dead, I'm more like that guy. This is the one that kind of hurts. I'm more like a Pharisee than I am like Jesus. I don't like to admit that, but it's the truth. There's more Pharisee in me than there is um, divine Son of God. And it's a hard reality. But the truth is, is that when I read Scripture... I want to imagine myself to be more like Jesus and that's okay to a certain degree but there comes a point when I have to look at the other guy and say you know what I am that guy and what God does in the other guy's life is what I need him to be doing in my life and so when we read what we're going to read in the book of Hosea I don't want you to think of yourself as Hosea he's the good guy in the story Hosea is the guy that God calls to do the impossible. And of course, we all want to learn that lesson, right? I want to be the guy willing to do whatever God tells me to do. Great. Go for it. Good luck. But, and we can be that person. But you are the other person. You can be that person. You can be like Hosea. But you are, listen, this, is, this, is, uh, this one hurts. You are Gomer. She's the girl. She's the, she's the prostitute. She's the woman of ill repute. So we can be like Hosea at times, but we are the other person. And, and, and I, I, not only do I want to say that to you, but I want to say that's okay. Because the lessons that we can learn from her perspective are life-changing. And in fact, we will have a better perspective of grace from her eyes than we can from Hosea's. As, as wonderful as Hosea's perspective is, the truth is, is that it's a more beautiful picture when we take it from, from Gomer's, and, and that was her name. So, um, yeah. So let me read. I want to start in Hosea chapter 2, and we're just going to read a few verses, but I want, to, I want to start in Hosea chapter 2. Look at verse 16. It says, It will be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. Jump down to verses 19 and then 20. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice. 
In loving kindness and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. And then notice verse 23. Then I will sow for her for myself in the earth and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And the picture is as clear as could be that God's going to use the redemption of this girl, Gomer, to her husband as a picture of his redemptive work in Israel to himself. And then you can put yourself into that scenario that you and I are the ones that God has redeemed and is redeeming to himself. And so the picture of Gomer to Hosea, Israel to God, you to the Lord. That's the idea here. And so the idea is that... um, At some point in chapter 2, and I'm kind of just jumping ahead, uh, you know, chapter 1, he's told to marry this woman. He marries her, and they have kids. They have a couple kids. And it seems like that's the end of the story. God calls Hosea, a prophet, to marry a woman of ill repute. He does, and it's like that's the happy ever after story. You know, that's the, the, the pretty woman story, you know. All of a sudden, the woman who was on the outside is being brought onto the inside. Her life is redeemed. She has a family now. The white picket fence, you know, the whole thing. Life is good. Until she rebels. She leaves. She goes back to her old life. She takes off. She splits. And then God calls Hosea to, now the first time to marry this girl would be a great picture of grace. But she left and God says, go after her. Go win her back. Go get her. And that's an extreme, I I use the word shameful. Let me add another one. It's a scandalous picture here. It's a very scandalous picture. And we'll see it here. While she's running around with another guy, God says to Hosea, go get her back. Go win her. In fact, notice verse 1 of chapter 3. The Lord said, go love a woman, go again, and love a woman who is loved by a lover, who is committing adultery, like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who took to other gods and love raisin cakes of the pagans. She has moved in with another guy who is not Hosea, after she's been married to Hosea and had kids with him. She went back to her old life. And then God says, I want you to go win her back. Go win her back. And I want you to try to imagine a, you know, for Hosea to do this the first time, can you imagine the kind of whispering that would have gone on around town? You know, and at least he could justify, hey, I'm a prophet and God told me to do this, you know. But then she left, and maybe there could have been a justification of, hey, I did what I could, you know, I tried. I really did love her, but I don't know what to do anymore. And then God says, go win her back. And you imagine, you know, he's got to track her down first. And then he finds out where she's living. And you can imagine it wasn't a nice place. She went back to an old life, a terrible life. And she goes back to that life, And Hosea is going to go after her. You know, and I imagine a scenario like this. I imagine, you know, I imagine where she's living wasn't good. I imagine she's not getting very well taken care of. And we'll see that in our text in a little bit. And Hosea comes, you know, knocking on the door. 
and some loser of a guy answers it and says, you know, what do you want? And Hosea says, well, I think my wife lives here. You know, yeah, well, she doesn't want to be with you anymore. She's with me. Well, can I talk to her? Whatever. And then Gomer comes to the door. What do you want? Go home. Go away. You know, well, I brought you some food. Well, I don't really care. Just leave it and get out of here. And imagine day after day after week after month. We have no idea how long it took. But he just kept persisting in trying to win her back. Just keep going after her. And you can imagine just breaking her down on that. You know, here's some food. Go away. I hate you. Two weeks later, here's some food. Go away. I don't really like you. Two months later, go away, but you're not that bad. Until one day, one day, at some point, she's going to say, what am I doing? What am I doing? How did I let myself get to this situation? And isn't that, you know, what does Romans tell us? That it's the love of God that, that leads us. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. God in a very kind of a, you could say, almost a scandalous way, he goes after those who fall away. You see, the story of Gomer would be great if God was just rescuing a sinner, but God's not just rescuing a sinner. God's rescuing a sinner who went back to her sin. It's not just a girl who came out of it. It's a girl who came out of it and went right back into it. And that's a picture that sadly is all too familiar to most of us. If not ourselves, somebody we know. And then what can be done for that person? What, what can be done for a person who has seen how great God is but has walked away? Well, the book of Hosea is a great story for that. God never gives up. He is relentless in pursuing with grace. And that's the idea here. Let me continue to read in chapter 3. Um, we read verse 1, verse 2. It says this. Oh, so God said in verse 1, you know, go love a woman who's loved by another. By the way, in verse 1, the word love is used five times. I mean, if that doesn't tell you what's on God's mind and what's in God's heart, go love, go love. Love a woman who is loved by another lover. Go love her. God's concern was love. Verse 2 is very peculiar. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver, one and a half homers of barley. Boy, there's a way of showing love, huh? Go love her. Go love a woman who is loved. So I bought her. That tells you we're in for quite a story. Verse 3, I said to her, you will stay with me many days. You will not play the harlot, nor will you have a man. So too will I be towards you. Verses 4 and 5, for the children of Israel will abide many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So do you see the first three verses are directed at Gomer and that relationship between Hosea and Gomer. But the next two are the picture that we're supposed to see that Gomer and Hosea represent. That is how God is trying to win back Israel. And you can carry that out into our own lives, how God is working to win us back. In many ways, this chapter is like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. For God so loved the world that he went after the world with his son. And the question is this, what is it that God wants? And it's pretty clear here that God wants a restored relationship with Israel. That's the bigger picture. The small picture is that God wants to restore the marriage of Gomer and Hosea. But the bigger picture is that God wants to restore Israel to himself. In the same way, in New Testament terms, we would say God wants to restore the world to himself. 
But really, the issue is this. As we've talked about Hosea and what it would take for him to get Gomer back, what does Hosea have to give up in order to get the girl? What is he going to have to give up? And I thought about this, and I've thought about this many, many times. The first thing that Hosea has to give up is all pride. You can have no pride. You can have no pride as a man, as a husband, as a father. That went out the window when you married the girl of ill repute, and it really went out the window when she left you. You thought you did a good deed, and now she left you. And you're in a small town where everybody knows everybody's business. You know, the Bible college in Hungary is in a small town, small, like 700 people town. Small. You get, you, you know, I'd go get my hair cut at the one person who cuts hair, you know, and I could hear everybody's business in town. Just the whole, you know, I'd go, you know, once a month I could find out what's happening with everything. That's the kind of idea of where Jose, Jose is living in a small town. Everybody's into everybody's business. Everybody's whispering, you know, about Hosea. And now here he is, imagine this, day after day, week after month, leaving his house, leaving the kids, maybe asking a neighbor to keep an eye on the boys because he's got to go try to win his wife back. You can have no pride if you're going to do that. Pride goes out the window. I thought about it, though. There's more than that. You have to give up resentment and unforgiveness. You can't hold on to unforgiveness if you're Hosea. For Hosea to go after her, and, and listen, he would be justified in his resentment. He'd be justified. Because I don't believe that Hosea went, uh, married Gomer just out of, out of divine obligation. I think ultimately he fell in love with this woman and they had a good life. She loved him and he loved her. And, that, and that's the true story of redemption. It couldn't just be on the surface. It had to be real. And they shared something that was real. And then she threw it all away. And he has got to be hurt. And he has every right. I imagine he wants, you know, yeah, resentment would be very easy to have. Bitterness and frustration. What about this? Here's something else you'd have to give up. Self-righteousness and self-pity. You have to give those up if you're going to go after the girl. You can't be a person who's just going to wallow in self-pity. Poor me. Poor Hosea. If that's going to be your life, then you'll never be able to go win the girl back. And the reason I'm pointing all this out is because in the end, Hosea is a picture of God. We're not Hosea in the story. God is. And when you think about what God had to, has to give up on a daily basis, forget daily, for all of eternity. I mean, you want to talk about a person who has no pride? It's God. Think about the company that God keeps. God hangs out with sinners. That's a, that's a lowering of his reputation, you could say. God willingly... I mean, if you imagine if there's anybody who could have resentment, and I know I'm using words that you would never associate with God, but think about that. The fact that you would never associate these words with God doesn't mean that they're not true. And yet we're so comfortable with the idea that God would never feel that way. Really? Are you certain of that? Doesn't he feel what we feel? Don't we get emotions from God? I mean, do you, is there anybody who could have more resentment than God? The amount of betrayal that he experiences every day on so many different levels and cultures 
languages, continents, cities, states all over the world. And yet, there's not one Bible verse that tells us that God had to, to, to stop feeling resentment towards us. And so we take it for granted. But the truth of the matter is, is that God has to give all of that up. He can hold on to none of that. No pride, no unforgiveness, no resentment, and certainly no self-pity. God never feels sorry for himself. We don't read of, of God ever feeling sorry for himself. And yet on a human level, on a human level, you could totally understand Hosea feeling this way, can't you? And I believe there's a reason we have the book of Hosea. Well, I think there's several, but here's one of them. The human emotions and experiences of a husband and a wife and the betrayal and the hurt and the restoration and all, that is totally understandable in almost every culture, maybe every culture. A deep relationship that is torn apart, we can all, we can all sympathize and experience that. And God says, that's what I want you to see in my relationship with you. I want you to see it that way. I think we quite often become pretty unsympathetic towards God's side. We see our side and we don't even imagine God's side. And so when God says, I want you to see my relationship with you in the same way you see your marriage, now that's, that hits us. That's totally relatable. And that's what's happening here. God says to him in verse 1, go love a woman who's been loved by somebody else. And verse 2 is so bizarre, so I bought her back. I bought her. That's an interesting way of showing love, isn't it? Not I bought flowers for her, but I bought her. Not I bought some, a gift. No, I bought her. I bought Gomer. This is how I could love her. What does that mean? Two quick, and, and I think it's two pictures that we're supposed to have in our mind. Two different pictures, but I think we can have both of them. One is of an auction. Very, very common idea in, in the ancient world and in the not-so-ancient world. The idea of a slave being auctioned off. And the other idea is of a bid. The idea of like, you know, just a, like some kind of a bidding war that was happening. Um, Exodus 21, 32. You don't need to turn there, but just here, here's, here's what we read. If, if an ox gores a male or female servant, person will give the master 30 shekels of silver. A slave was worth 30 shekels of silver. By the way, does that sound familiar to you? 30 shekels of silver? Okay. That was the price of Jesus. The price of a slave. It was a common price for a normal slave. A slave was worth 30 pieces of silver. What is redemption? We like the word redemption. It's a great Christian word. But it simply means to buy something, to buy back. And that's what's happening here. Hosea is redeeming Gomer. That's a nice way of saying it. It makes us feel a lot better. But the truth is, is she's a slave. She was for sale and Hosea bought her. And it's the picture that we're supposed to have um, of what God has done for you and me. By the way, how much did she sell for? 15 shekels, half the price of a slave. That tells you what people thought of her. That tells you what she was really worth. This woman was worth nothing. This woman was worth nothing. What's interesting is that in the Bible, do you remember the story when, you know, the Ark of the Covenant came back into Israel and, uh, and it settled on a property and then David was ready to go and to get the Ark 
And the owner of the land said, hey, you know, I'll give you this area. You know, you can have it. And what did David say to him? He said, no, it has to cost me something. Redemption always costs something. It's hard for us to understand that because we're on the receiving end. We're the ones who have been redeemed. And this idea of Hosea and Gomer gives us an opportunity to, realize, to see it from the other side, from Hosea's side, or maybe more importantly, from, from God's side. I want you to imagine an, a, a bid where, you know, the auctioner says, somebody give me 10 shekels, you know, and Hosea raises his hand, somebody else says 11, 12, 13, 14, Somebody says 15 and Hosea. It's interesting because did you see what it says there in verse 2? I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. (laughs) Why do you think he threw in the barley? I think it's simple. I think he didn't have any more money. I think he gave, listen, it's a great picture. He gave everything that he had. I have 15 pieces of silver. I have nothing more. And when somebody bid, the ultimate price that he, I mean, he, that was everything that he had. He, okay, I've got, I've got this much barley. I'll throw that in too. It's a beautiful picture of, of redemption because that's what the Bible tells us God did when he became one of us. God gave everything. Not a price, but the whole thing. And so Homer is going to throw in everything that he has to buy back a woman who probably wasn't worth it. That's the the grace of God. God God doesn't redeem you because you have that value. You know, value is subjective, isn't it? You know, people are willing to buy that, pay that much for a house or that, for a car or for a phone or for a bike or whatever it is. If people will pay it, okay, great. It's subjective. And the price of people is quite subjective, isn't it? Your, your value to me is based on what you can do for me. So if you can't do anything for me, then you have no value to me. God became one of us and said, no, I'm going to change the rules. I'm going to give everything that I have to show you that everyone has value. And the value is infinite. And so Hosea gave everything that he had to win this girl back, to buy her. The world is always bidding for you and me. There's, always, there's a price. What will you give for your marriage? What will you give for your character? What will you give for, you know... What will you trade? But the, the moral of this story, listen, there's always a, pr- there's a price out there for you. Always. The devil will always try to bid. But the story here, the ultimate picture here is this. It's not that the world wants to bid for you. It's that God has outbid in ways that the world and the devil and humanity could never bid. God offered something that no one could ever match. That's the picture of the cross. The cross is a price so precious, no one could come close to matching that. What God has done for you and me can, can never be matched. For all of eternity, it'll be, the, it'll be the marvel of eternity. The price that God paid to reach you and to reach me. And that's a picture of what's happening here. 
Notice verse 3, it says, Hosea buys her, right? I'm sure it was a bizarre meeting once he got, you know. And he says this, though. You will stay with me many days, and you will not play the harlot. So he buys her, brings her home, and locks her up. <laughs> You're not going anywhere for a while. You know, and I imagine after a week, she's like, you know, let me take the kids to school. No, I'll take the kids to school. You stay here. Let me go shopping. I'll go shopping. You make a list. Sounds terrible, right? House arrest. And yet it's exactly what he knew she needed. And God knows what we need. And God, re God has redeemed us for what purpose? It's to be in a relationship. God didn't redeem us so we could go to church. God didn't redeem us so that we can be good people. God redeemed us so that we could have a relationship with him. And Hosea, is, Hosea says, I'm not sharing you ever again. And if that means you got to stay here, then you got to stay here. <laughs> because I'm not going to share you ever again. And I think that's the, that's the true picture of God's redemption. God didn't redeem you to share you. He redeemed you for himself. He redeemed you so that he could have you. So that he could love you. So that he could give you, listen, and you know how many of us Christians today are suffering from an identity crisis because we're letting other people or the world or things tell us what we're worth. The whole picture of redemption is that God says, I am going to be your soul possession and you will be mine and you will get your sense of worth from me. And if you're wondering how, how if you matter, then just look at the cross. If you're wondering uh, if you have any value, then look at the cross. Do you understand the picture? Your value is rooted in Christ, not in what the world says, what your school says, what your friends say, what your work says, what your parents say. You are identified or you're supposed to be. But this is where we have a hard time. And this is where Gomer had a hard time. Gomer was with Hosea and then left and let herself be identified with this other guy. And he didn't care about her. She meant nothing. When it was time, he sold her. And it's still the picture today. Friends, if you're going to let yourself Get your identity from anything other than Christ. It'll be half price. <laughs> You'll always be, you will always be half price. You'll, it, you, it'll never be, you know, and even, even saying that we have a problem because even the idea today is you're worth more, you're worth more, you're worth more. And we hear that as Christians and we say, it, something about it doesn't sound right. And it's true because even that is half price. You can convince yourself how good you are and it's still nothing. Your ultimate value only comes from an eternal God who paid a price for you. You've paid nothing for you. You got stuck with you. You've paid nothing for you. Your view of you is, 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 is small in the end. But God's view, an eternal perspective, one who gave everything, and he says, I cherish you. I love you. I value you. I'm willing to give up my pride, my unforgiveness, my self-pity. I'll give up everything for you. That is true identity. That's value. Don't settle for your own view of you. It'll always be small. As big of a head as you can get, it'll be tiny. It'll be out of proportion because it won't be God's perspective. And my encouragement to you, as, and I'm going I'm to be done right now, is this. God values you 
more than anyone, more than anything, even yourself. And the best thing that you and I could ever do is be in serious relationship with God. It's just be in serious relationship with God. What does God think? What does God say? What does God want? What is God's will? It's the whole thing. It's what he died for so that you could be redeemed for relationship with him. Now, the when we are in relationship with God, when we're getting our worth from him, our identity, our sense of purpose and our sense of value, we become weapons in the world. We become, well, weapons is a, it's a good word, but we like the word tools. We become a tool in God's hand. Hopefully it's an offensive tool, right? <laughs> a weapon. Something that can be used by God to touch other people's lives. But that's, that happens through people who understand who they are in Christ. And the more you understand who you are in Christ, the more effective you will be as a Christian as well. And that's why we do all these things. It's why we have church. It's why we gather together. It's why we get into God's word. It's so we could know God so that we, uh, we will understand why we're even here in the first place. I'd venture to say most people in, on this planet don't even know why they're here. Most people, you know, we're an accident. Just struggling to find a purpose and live. Happiness is the goal. But what if there's something more? What if we were made and what if we were bought for something more? And you, it's why you're here today, I imagine. You already know that. The grace of God is a scandalous thing. Even shameful if you're willing to, t- to accept the picture. That's, the, that's where the beauty of grace really lies. Not that God saved good people, but that God saves people who are unworthy. That's the true picture. It's a privilege to be with you. And let me close in a word of prayer. We're going to close in a song of worship. And let me pray for you. Lord, it's a joy to get to be here today. And it's a joy to get to share your word. And most of all, Lord, it's a joy because we get to be in your presence. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage Calvary Chapel Green Meadow that you are you are here and that you love them and that you have purpose for each one of their lives and I pray father that we would my, my hope and my heart is that that there would be a we'd have a greater sense of of the extent of your love not that we could ever fully understand it not on this side of heaven but that we could have a better sense of it God that we have been loved with an everlasting love. That we have been loved in such a way, God, that we could never, we could never earn it. And I thank you for that, God. And I pray for, I pray for those today, Lord, that maybe are in need of hearing that. That they need to hear that they have been loved with a love that can't be measured that they have value, not because, not, not a self-worth or a self-value, not that that's wrong, but that's not, that's not enough. Lord, their value is most seen at the cross where you gave everything. And so, Lord, I pray that you would touch your people and you would bless your people and you would encourage your people, God. And I pray that, these, that th- th- this church, Lord, that they would just grow deeper and deeper in their relationship with you, God. Bless them, Lord, and fill them with your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name.
Amen.